right, everybody. Thank you for staying tuned. Good morning. You're listening to the June 26, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Primaries today are being held in Colorado, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Utah. With all the man-made crises occurring around the country, it's kind of hard to keep track of something as quaint yet vital as elections. Make sure you're near and dear in those places. Turn out to vote today. Today, my guest for a full billable hour is immigration attorney Angelita Chavez-Halka. We're going to make sure I got that right. Practicing in the Cerritos private law firm, Chug, and she'll speak with experience about family-based petitions, asylum, deportation defense, Violence Against Women Act, and DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Not only is she fresh from this month's American Immigration Lawyers Association Convention, but she will answer our wide-eyed questions about what is to taking place in a very arcane and politicized legal system. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour, however, Another uh, three or four would surely do is Angelita Chavez Halaka. Halaka. Oh, it's Halaka. Thank you for having me. Halaka. She is an. Im- I'm not done. I've just started introducing you. She is an immigration attorney in the Cerritos Law Firm of Chug. Offices located in. Listen up, folks. Hell, L.A., Santa Clara, Edison, New Jersey, Atlanta, Reston, VA, Washington D.C., Bangalore, Chennai, D- New Delhi, Mumbai. Chandigarh, Ahmedabad, and Sao Paulo, Brazil. We met this spring at an Ag Tech Innovation Conference at nearby Applied Innovation, Sustainable Sea. Thanks again, Scott Kitcher, and arranged this interview. I'll find out today how much the current upheavals from national level policy has changed since then. Angelita Chavez. Halaka is experienced in family-based petitions, asylum, deportation, defense, violence against women act, VAWA is the shorthand, and DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Rivals. Prior to joining the firm, Angelita represented pro bono clients for the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project in Seattle. She's represented clients in immigration court and has helped clients obtain legal permanent residence and naturalization. Folks, let that process sink in, all the way in. While in law school, Angelita worked on, and can we say advocated for, migrant workers as a Laurel Rubin farm worker, justice fellow for Columbia Legal Services in Washington State. She participated as well in a street law clinic teaching high school students about the law. She completed both her undergraduate and her law degrees at the University of Washington. And way beyond dotting the I's and crossing the T's of these august credentials, she's currently pursuing a Ph.D. in political science at, where is that, Angelita? I just didn't get that part. Um, this is at the University of Oregon. At the U of in Eugene. She's taught courses on legal processes and lectured on special topics in immigration and law policy. She gives her non-existent time left over to 
Latino and Education Achievement Project, that's known as LEAP, Citizenship and Immigration Clinic at Chug, and at One America Citizenship Day Clinic. She speaks Spanish, converses in Arabic, and she conducts this interview in English, of course. And she <laughs> comes to us from her office in Cerritos. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Angela chavez Halaka. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, first, I have to hand it to your colleagues and you, the enormous complexities you must manage with the massive and rapid changes in immigration law and immigration policy. The emotional toll of representing such vulnerable clients must be immense with the prospect of that toll only intensifying. My own skin is barely thick enough to prepare for and conduct this interview. So, well, before we get into the plan interview, I'm compelled to ask you, it's breaking news, folks. Uh, I want to ask about the Supreme Court's ruling that does uphold, it was the third iteration of the White House's Muslim travel ban. Angela Lita, can you tell us just what, I mean, without much chance to prepare, but I know you're looking over because it affects your, some of your clients. Tell us a bit how it does affect your prospective clients trying to process their papers. Well, it definitely makes the situation a lot more challenging. As you mentioned, this was a 5-4 decision. It was pretty much on partisan lines. Um, it was, like, again, the third version of this travel ban, so it was a lot more narrower than the first two original versions. And essentially, it, it, it bans folks that are coming from Iran, North Korea, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, and Venezuela. Uh, the majority decision uh, by Chief Justice Roberts essentially um, essentially stated that that the executive order, which um, on the travel ban, was actually within the presidential uh, authority, and therefore it was not constitutional. So that was a, the essential ruling on the travel ban. Um, the majority decision did not necessarily consider statements that were made um, previously to passing uh, the travel ban by, uh, by the president. Um, this is part of, if you remember, Hawaii's lawsuit. Um, and so we have some, some you know, harsh dissents. Sotomayor was one of right. the, the, the dissenters in the majority decision. And, um, and, and her, 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 her dissent was based on the fact that, that the majority did not, did not take into consideration President Trump's statements prior to the, to, the, to the ban and not considering them relevant to the actual passing of the ban is where, her, where she dissents. And, and so, again, this is, this is a, in, in, you know, developing in progress, and we probably will be hearing a lot more of this. Um, one of the ways that I, I can think of off immediately that would impact um, families specifically are mixed, you know, mixed status families, families who have, you know, maybe a parent who is from one of these countries that's banned and maybe a parent who's a U.S. citizen and they have children. And you can imagine the difficulties in trying to um, you reunite these families because of this ban. And so although technically the, um, this, the, this ban that was upheld um, it's supposed to end once Congress finds, a, you know, finds some sort of solution to, to these sorts of issues. We, we can imagine how long that, that may take, right? Uh, it's, it's been taking a long time to even reach agreement on immigration policies and immigration reform. That hasn't happened yet, although they're supposed to be voting on a bill soon. But you can imagine how long um, it might take Congress to even deal with some of these issues, which is technically when this travel ban is supposed to end. So in, 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 if Congress is not come up with alternative solutions to dealing with some of these, you know, security concerns, potentially this ban might, you know, might be, might last forever, might last a very, very long time, in which case families would be separated for a very, very long time. So it's very concerning. So 
it's a uh, journalism all over needs to really put a bright bright light on how this I, and I, I meant it when I said it what the man-made crises the flow of people trying to seek asylum from this the countries you mentioned are not exactly uh, you know there's not exactly civil society working in some of those so there's lots of reason there's lots of motivation to flee so I think we all need to do our part to attend to how much havoc this is wrecking and you're right about the I mean the the deferred action for childhood arrivals coming out of what was the Dreamers Act from 2010 that was not voted on it didn't mm -hmm. even reach a vote so it's looking at how difficult it that some was it 2.5 million sort of a target population that's being dealt with a, a very specific kind this is a much more diffuse kind of uh, of a demographic of a people all over the world and and some of whom as you said the mixed status families are some of them that are already here well that's a that's a big bite off of that apple so we're going to go into the watermelon here then of the the whole the whole immigration array of things that you're tainted so I, I would like for you to tell us what was this buzz like at the June 13 through 16, the American Immigration Lawyers Association uh, that met this earlier this month, were you all seeing this zero tolerance policy that I believe it rolled out on June 12th? But I mean, there was percolation of this was going to be coming up. So what was it like around that convening group of lawyers? Uh, well, you can imagine it was, I have never seen that many, um, I've been to a, a couple conferences and, and this is my second AILA conference and there were thousands of, uh, of attendees. One, of, one room, for example, in one of the sessions held over 3,000 people and what? it was packed to the brim. Some rooms were, there was no seating room, so people were sitting on the floors, right, in some of these panels and some of these sessions. So an extreme interest um, in, in learning about some of these things that are happening and figuring out what, what are steps to take. Uh, definitely a lot of interest, and many of the attendees stayed until the very last panel on the very last day. Uh, some of the presenters commented that they have never seen that many attendees stay all the way until the end because usually people are very exhausted and they just want to go home because there's, it's just so much information and, and so much mental energy that you're, um, you're expending. But uh, people stayed until the very end to learn about things like, like denaturalization and, and some of these important issues that are, that are happening. So um, there's definitely a lot of, a, a lot of um, just nervous energy, I guess you can say, in terms of, you know, let's figure out what to do. And there's also just very motivating. Um, our keynote speaker um, uh, was very motivating, and, and, and there's also lots of AILA, for example, is setting up a, a litigation um, group in which they're going to be taking up some of these issues, and hopefully they'll be litigating and challenging some of these things that are happening in order to, you know, really protect due process and really protect the rights of, of you know, of everyone in, in this country. So, so there's 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 a motivation in terms of that and positivity in terms of that, but also a little bit of just nervousness in, in terms of the challenges that that are, are are coming, have come, and will continue to to come in days in, in days. Um, and months and, <laughs> and years ahead. So we definitely saw a lot of that. Um, in terms of the changes and things that we started to see, we, we did. We, as practitioners, we're you know, constantly at the forefront, constantly trying to learn about what's happening, changes that are happening with USCIS, all of these different agencies that we deal with constantly. So we, we have begun to see 
things even way prior to um, to the announcement of the zero to zero policy zero tolerance policy. We've begun to see them since the beginning of the administration. Changes, for example, like in longer processing times for family-based petitions. Um, and even longer waiting times now for U visa applications. So now, for example, before you could have said maybe two years for a U visa, now it's taking 46 months to 46 and a half months. And we'll get we'll get into those um, those details yes. in just a little bit. But so I wanted sure. to sort of sort of have people sort of process what you all were attending to, what it was like. And so did a lot of the pre presenters at AILA conference, did they just have to scrap their original submissions and they had to put in something new? Like you know, I didn't attend fly? any any uh, panel session in which that necessarily happened because, okay. again, we have already these things have been you know well well in line in the horizon in terms of um, of immigration and, and, and practitioners. So we we see this uh, pre prior to anything actually sometimes going out right in the news. Yes. We, okay. we end up finding out about these things. So I think a lot of panels were just prepared. And some of these things that Mr. Um, that this pres this administration is doing, we have to understand that the, the framework has been in place long before this president. The framework for a lot of these things has has been in place long before. So, um, in terms of that happening, um, I'm not necessarily surprised because the framework has has always been there, and it was just a matter of somebody taking it to that extreme, which is what's happening. So, in terms of that, um, I definitely didn't notice any any surprises that the panel no turns there yeah had to do it's just really really preparing and kind of like okay everything that we knew that was bad that was going to happen is happening that it was more of that type of attitude okay and so okay you know it's time to litigate now <laughs> let's let's do something so the term zero tolerance is the one I guess it was pushed out from the the White House from the Department of Justice so I sometimes that the terms and the way in which debates are framed sort of have a power over any kind of dissenting disposition. So, but are, are we just going to call it zero tolerance? Is there a better word, that a better language coming out of the conference and, and your other legal circles? You know, we I, I didn't hear any discussion in terms of the policies being as z zero tolerance policies. Um, because, again, a lot of these things have already been in place way before. Okay. A lot of this framework has been in place. So it's just more of the harshness of the administration and really taking things to the fullest extreme possible and, you know, and going sometimes beyond some of those, those lines in terms of due process protections. And so um, I don't know if there's necessarily a better word right now uh, that we could potentially come up with. But uh, in a sense, even, even the actual term itself, zero tolerance, is a little bit um, deceiving because uh, the president is not doing anything different than other presidents have done, which is prioritizing. And in this case, he's prioritizing separating families. He's prioritizing, you know, certain things that other presidents were not prioritizing before. Because if, in fact, it was zero tolerance, then, you know, millions of people would already be, have been, you know, be in the process of getting picked up and deported, and that's not happening, right? So right. because it's impossible to have a policy that's truly zero tolerance because there is no amount of resources that could you know, do all of that. So um, that could essentially do what what this president um, is trying to do, which is which is have a zero zero tolerance policy towards um, undocumented immigration or immigrants in general. So for those of you who've just tuned in to ask a leader for the full hour is Angelita 
Chavez Halaka, immigration attorney in private practice at the Cerritos firm, where she clients counsels her clients on unlawful presence waivers, violence against women act, naturalization, complex immigration matters, and eligibility for other forms of immigration relief. And so we're let's talk about you mentioned the the you paperwork. Um, there's the one of the topics covered, and what you you work on in your own practice. And I want you to give us some real deep sort of uh, insight about how these targets are moving, how, what kind of protections they, they are having, what was covered, uh, the removal orders for the U, that the U visa, these are victims of human trafficking, and then you can, we'll go on into the, the T visa, victims of, the, of crime. So um, what is there for you to work with for your clients claiming those? So in terms of U visas, U visas are for, you know, again, victims of certain qualifying crimes. And then the T visas actually are visas for victims of trafficking. And uh, I thankfully have not seen anything specifically targeting U visas or anything specifically targeting T visas. But one way we have seen uh, some impact in terms of these policies is the end of, uh, of uh, prosecutorial discretion. And, um, and the end of this means that you know, immigration judges are no longer closing cases administratively for the pursuit of other immigration uh, benefits. So, for example, if somebody was in removal proceedings and they potentially had a, a U visa available or let's say they had um, unlawful presence waiver that they could potentially file based on, um, on uh, a family-based petition by a U.S. citizen spouse or parent. Right. Uh, or sorry, yeah, or U.S. citizen spouse or parent, uh, and they were in removal proceedings um, before before the, this administration, um, applicants could, could potentially request DHS uh, and the Office of Chief Counsel, as well as the immigration judge, and file a motion to administratively close that case so they can seek these immigration benefits. And if approved, if USCIS would approve some of these benefits, then you could op- reopen proceedings and then terminate the case, in which case this, this would allow immigration judges to really prioritize cases that didn't have these sorts of avenues available and, and hopefully, you know, take away from some of the backlog. Unfortunately, now with um, the end of prosecutorial discretion and, and some of these these um, avenues that allowed some cases to move forward, uh, it, what's happening is that now everyone is a priority. So every single person is on the same lines um, as, as uh, you know, every, every, regardless of your background, regardless of the equities in your favor, everyone is in the same sort of uh, priority for removal, which means that um, the immigration judges are being more and more backlogged in terms of, of immigration hearings and immigration cases. And so you see longer delays with new visas, like I mentioned earlier, the backlog is now to 46 and a half months. Uh, in terms of waiting wow. for a visa to be adjudicated, which is a very long time for folks to be waiting. Um, and during that time, folks who are petitioning for U visas, who are, who are these victims of crimes, you know, can't get a work permit until they've entered this um, sort of deferred action type of a list. And, and again, that's, that takes years for that to happen. So it, it's a very, uh, very long wait for folks who, who have been victims of crime, and it's even longer now. And the reason why, as well, is because the U visas are capped at 10,000 visas a year. So when you have over 30,000, 40,000 applicants for U visas every single year and only 10,000, you can see how the backlog is just continues to grow and grow and efforts have been made in the past for, to increase the cap in Congress and it's been den- denied every single time. So, uh, so that, that, that's part of the reason why we, we see some of these backlogs as well. So to personalize 
how and operationalize what a 46.5 month delay of getting heard and and it's still that's not the end of the line it's just it's sort of getting heard at that point but so that person is not able to get any work correct not 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 a work permit until they're put on what's called a deferred action list and again that can take like two to three years um i have a u visa pro bono u visa pending right now uh for three years they this month, it, it's just been three years, and there's been no adjudication, no deferred action list, nothing, and so we're still waiting. Uh, thankfully, they had other avenues to obtain a, a, a work permit, oh. a work authorization, and so we were able to pursue that instead, but not everyone has those, those options. No. And so folks who only have a U visa, and that is their only option, they, they're just essentially you know, waiting until their, their U visa is adjudicated, which is years and years down the line. So no work. No income, no stability, uh, family relationships are, are stressed with, you know, the, the cohesion of the family unit stressed with the, uh, with the, the, the lack of that kind of financial well-being and that kind of a thing. So it's, I, I just want to keep having everybody consider how this works or how it doesn't. So 10000 per year is capped for the UV. That's just one visa. What about the T visas? Is, is that also a tremendous backlog? Actually, the T visas, um, I'm not sure what the cap is for those. And those, we um, we get less applicants for the T visas and we uh, in terms of just the, the, the overall numbers because in, in order to qualify to be uh, to apply for a T visa, you have to meet certain specific requirements in terms of trafficking and and not and not everyone necessarily fits those requirements. So you have to be trafficked for like a specific pers- purpose, whether it's you know for labor uh, or those those sorts of um, those sorts of crimes and. Um, and so, so it's a different requirements than the U visa requirements. And because of that, I, I think that there are um, not necessarily the same amount, the same numbers of, of folks applying for, for, uh, for, for T visas, even though I, I, I believe potentially there might be more people who actually qualify, but I think it's more about getting the information out there to see if people would qualify for a T visa instead of a U visa. So the demographic we're getting most acquainted with of people moving, I mean, walking all the way out of Central America through Mexico into the Texas and California, Arizona borders. So are those uh, prospects for you visas, are, 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 is that the, the ones that are trying to avoid further domestic abuse, further gang activity? Is that, are they trying their best to fit the U visa description and requirements? Well, for U visas, the crime has to have occurred in the United States. Oh, and oh. you also have to have um, the, the qualifying crime. So not everything qualifies, right? There's a few things that if, uh, if they don't necessarily fit under the federal definition of what that crime would be, uh, then they might not qualify. So sometimes felonious assault or sometimes assault, if it's not considered a felonious assault uh, under federal regulations, then they might not qualify. So the, the crime does have to occur in the United States, and moreover, there has to be a certification by some sort of law enforcement authority or um, some, some sort of a d- department that's able to certify that the, uh, that the victim was actually helpful in the investigation of the crime. And so if, if you're not able to, oftentimes the challenges that we see yeah. with visas is that agencies, uh, these local agencies or, you know, or um, um, Police agencies don't actually want to issue the certifications. And, really, uh, and they it, don't. And there's nothing that really dem- commands them to actually issue the certifications. Wow. And so it sometimes can make that difficult because without the certification, we don't meet one of the elements, one of the prongs, one of the essential elements of the case, 
without certification. So if, even if the person did suffer uh, of the, the, the qualifying crime, they, have, they can show harm based on that qualifying crime. Uh, if they're not able to demonstrate that they were helpful in the investigation of this crime and then the prosecution of this crime against them, because of this lacking the certification, then we can't even really file. It's very challenging. So it's, it's, sometimes it it's, takes a long time to be able to get those certifications from the proper authorities. So it, would domestic, would spousal or domestic abuse be a real classic one here, the, a bind that makes it very difficult to meet all of the, the threshold to get that visa successfully? Yeah, domestic violence would definitely be one of the qualifying crimes. Um, and if the victim is able to, you know, get police reports, uh, if the victim was able to, you know, file, file police reports and, and be beneficial in one way, shape, or form um, in, in trying to, trying to, to, um, to do something, whether with filing a restraining order or whatever it right. is, against their, 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 um, their abuser, and they're able to then, we're able to then uh, request a certifying certification from, from the police agency, potentially that would work. But again, sometimes the challenge is even just getting those certifications because they may not have the resources or they may not be departments available for that or, or they're just, uh, police agencies may just be really unfamiliar with VAWA and they might not necessarily know um, how to process those. So the discretion that the police have in the certification step, the uh, essential step, so that came out of the the rulemaking for that law. I mean, that's is that where it is, or is it just well, some de facto kind of piece? There's a lot of um, there are a lot of you know immigration laws and policies that actually require the you know they, they the cooperation of other agencies. So, for example, special juvenile status. And one of the prongs to qualify for special juvenile status is to get some sort of family law court or some sort of agency that deals with 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 juveniles and um, and to actually issue some sort of decree that the juvenile is actually abandoned, um, neglected, and they're they're unable to be cared for by their parents, right? And so it requires some sort of state agency, some sort of state department to issue that, and then that is part of the prong. It's part of the elements of that case to establish special juvenile status. And so there are um, there are quite a few. Um, Quite a few things out there actually require those things, and so it's just more about informing the these local agencies and and um, and giving them the, the information that they need, giving them the instructions that they need, and just really advocating um, on behalf of your your client to make sure that you get those certifications. So you're working on a case by case basis with your clients, but what would be the best way, Angelita, to so called to do that step, informing local agencies how this this could be working? I mean, who, where, what vehicle is there available? Well, usually um, we, you can partner with nonprofits uh, in Seattle, for example, which is where my one of my co- clients comes from. Uh, the 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 sheriff's department actually has an office fully dedicated for U visa certification, so their process is so much easier. And if if the crime occurred within that county, um, where you know there's 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 a quite a, a, a very straightforward process in terms of a, applying for certifications through that office. And so it really um, really oftentimes just comes down to having an organization that's able to dedicate the, the time to to be um, informing the, those agencies out there of, of these options. So that, that could be one help that no. that Washington State and maybe namely King County where Seattle's located would be an exemplary sort of um, model for, for others to follow around the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I might feel expedite it a little. For their process there, and I know that another. I don't. I haven't had clients from many other states, but I know that in some other states, uh, attorneys do face challenges, and it's just really working case by case, and sometimes 
calling, um, you know, sometimes having to call congressmen or, or things of that nature to really try to pressure. Uh, it, it's, it can, it could, can be quite challenging. So I guess though that's the lever to, to bring up too in, in appealing to Congress for legislative action. Just personalize it to the hilt with that. I don't know if there's anything more powerful. But um, so then there's the provisional waivers on unlawful presence. The uh, for those of us that don't practice this stuff, the I six O one A. Can you give us like walk us through a client story how that you know how that works or doesn't. Sure. So the unlawful presence waiver, it's a waiver that's only available to waive the inadmissibility of somebody based on unlawful presence, which means that if they have other issues of inadmissibility, such as crimes, deportations, or, you know, any other error, any other, anything else that can potentially make them um, inadmissible, it does not waive those grounds. But it does waive the ground of inadmissibility. So for, for those folks, let's say they entered the United States um, as, you know, uh, either they entered the United States um, without any documentation, without any inspection, and they remained in the U.S. for more than a year, uh, those folks would be subject to a 10-year bar of inadmissibility. So just by being in the United States for more than a year without authorization. And those folks, because they would be subject to this 10-year bar of inadmissibility, when they are able to qualify for, um, for a family petition, let's say they have a spouse that's a U.S. citizen or, say, let's say, or, or a parent that's either a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident, let's say these folks now want to file a family-based petition, well, they would have to, um, once approved, they would have to leave the country to consular process. And once they leave the country to consular process, they would be automatically subject to this 10-year bar. And so that means that without this waiver, they would have to wait outside of the United States for 10 years before they can come back in without a waiver. And so, so for where folks do they go? Have, they just yeah, go. So for folks who have a parent who's a U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident or a spouse that's a legal permanent resident or U.S. citizen, they would be able to apply for this uh, provisional unlawful presence waiver, I-601A. And this waiver, you have to prove extreme hardship. This is not just regular hardship, like I'm going to be sad or it's going to be very difficult to pay my bills, right? Uh, it's extreme hardship on the qualifying relative. And this could be either health-related grounds, extreme financial uh, uh, hardship, um, hardship in terms of safety. For example, if you think about same-sex couples who may, for, may, for example, face um, violence or death in the beneficiary's country of origin were they to move, right? These are some of the hardship factors that you could consider uh, that would go into one of these waivers. And so if the provisional waiver is approved, the great thing is that it would be approved in the United States um, prior to the provisional waiver the beneficiary had to apply for this waiver outside of the United States, which meant that they had to wait outside of the United States for months or maybe a year, maybe longer, to get the waiver approved and then come back, right? So with this provisional waiver, folks receive the adjudication of the waiver in the United States. That's why it's called the stateside waiver. Okay. They receive the decision, and if it's approved, they are able to then consular process, take their approval with them, do consular processing, and if there are no other issues of inadmissibility at the consulate, um, you know, fraud, misrepresentation, deportations, or anything else, multiple reentries. If there's none of those other things, then the officer would then give this, you know, stamp of approval, and the person would be able to come back into the U.S. as a legal permanent resident, which saves a lot of time, saves a lot of stress um, for some of these families, and uh, being able to, you know, apply for this provisional waiver. But again, it's very limited because it is only for those that have U.S. citizen or legal permanent resident parents or spouses, so children uh, who have 
parents who have children who are U.S. citizens would not qualify for this, and they would not be able to apply for this waiver. All right, I can see how that was uh, decided. So if you could maybe just use one or one incident to explain how that works. I mean, they go out. I mean, they may yes. or may not have documentation from their country of origin, but so stepping out, it's not just like you're getting off an airplane and you're going back in the airport. You're going, this, you're, you're going to another place, yes. which may or may not also pose some kinds of, I don't know, hardships that you're subjected to as well. And at the security, financial, you know, stability and all those kinds of, where, where does your client go when they have to leave for one to 10 years? So for, for thankfully, with they apply, if they are able to qualify for this hardship waiver, they, they should technically only be out of the country for a couple weeks, right? Okay. And so for folks who are approved, all the folks that I have sent down with an approval, they're only down in, in, um, in, at the consulate for a couple weeks. So they, they are able to get there, you know, maybe stay in a hotel or find, you know, uh, potential relatives or somebody. They can stay for a few days. They do their process, and they're able to immediately come back. Uh, whereas prior to this, people were having to figure out what to do for months to a year, you know, even longer, year at a time before their waiver was approved. And that was extremely um, difficult on the families, extremely um, stressful and strainful on them. And this is why the provisional waiver was was um, was changed to mitigate some of these things. But for folks who have to be outside of the country, you know, for 10 years, who have these permanent bars and have no choices, uh, you know, there's there's very long-term separation of families, parents, um, you know, spouses, and things of that nature. And it's extremely stressful, especially when you think about, let's say, I mostly I deal with a lot of Latino clients and clients coming from even some states of Mexico where the um, the dangers are at a level four, right, in terms of what the Department the Department of State says, like travel advisories, don't go to these places because the, the right. danger is at a level four, and then you expect somebody to actually stay there and wait out their 10 years when uh, potentially they might face, you know, um, extreme dangers to their physical safety, to themselves, um, their families, and, um, you know, kidnappings, uh, murders, and that sort of thing. So these are real, real dangers that people, um, families have to contend with when they have to um, deal with things such as an unauthorized presence. So, Angelita, is there a collision here then with the Supreme Court upheld um, the, the Muslim ban? If someone coming from Yemen, that they they might have been able to prove this extreme hardship, but no way, there there's a, a ban for them coming. Well, you know, the way that the, um, the ban was upheld was uh, in terms of um, national security and those concerns, and so so if if you're looking at weigh, weighing national security concerns and weigh, weighing those those things against a, a person's individual hardship, there right. that's what you're going for. And so so this ban um, is being upheld based on some some of these concerns that are supposed to be national security, right? And so in that situation, then a person's individual danger or um, less. what they're facing, right, is is not necessarily uh, being taken into account in, in, the, in, the, in this, these sorts of decisions. And so it's unfortunate. So you're giving us a, a real uh, vivid idea of how long the wait is, the backlog. And I, I mean, I'm not going to get into staffing issues and fiscal this and that, that, um, you know, keeping track of all this, because that's, there. there's, I want to get into the nitty gritty of the laws itself. But so if um, one analyst was talking uh, recently about how each administration in the White House, they tend to shuffle around their priorities 
with yes. asylum. So um, how, I mean, it's a mess. That There's some people that have been, like, it's been their career to be an asylum seeker for, I mean, what? how long can it be? Like a, a generation and a half? Well, right now, it's, there's at least a couple years of wait for, for uh, certain asylum cases. And the reason is because uh, prior to this administration, uh, again, like you said, it's priorities, right? Everyone shifts them around, who, you know, who's going to come in first and who's not. And this administration, uh, usually when cases are sent to USCIS, this is for affirmative asylum, people who are seeking asylum affirmatively. These are people who are not were not placed first in removal proceedings. They were actually seeking asylum affirmatively. So for folks like this, you would file with USCIS, uh, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. And then, you know, USCIS has uh, processing times and and wait times for each of these petitions, whether it's asylum, whether it's family-based petitions, adjustment of status, right? And and you know when you file it kind of sort of what your waiting time period is. Uh, what this administration has done is that actually they have removed the asylum affirmative asylum bulletin, which kind of told you where your case was in the queue. So let's say I filed for asylum oh, for someone a couple of years ago. I would know that, oh, there's another year before my case comes up, right? Um, and so my client is familiar and they're aware of that and they're kind of anticipating that well. What's happening now is that they have moved to a first, last-in, first-out scenario, and they've completely taken away the asylum, asylum bulletin. So now uh, they're giving priority to uh, cases that were filed in, like, the last 21 days, which means that those are the cases that are, that are being moved out and they're getting uh, interviews immediately, which means that folks that applied for asylum a year ago or two years ago or even a few months ago, uh, now instead of having an idea of when they would be coming up for interview, now have no idea. We don't know how long the wait is, right, because they're moving into – and I don't know necessarily what the, um, what the rationale was for this, and I'm not quite sure – how it's making the process move faster. That's, I guess, something that we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But because they have moved into this first in, uh, I mean, last in, first out type of situation, um, it's, we, I just don't know when, when, when a couple of my assignment cases are ever going to come up for interview, which means that my, uh, my, my pro bono clients are just kind of waiting in the meantime, and, and that's all we can really do because there's, there's, unless something else changes, unless they change priorities again, right now we, we really don't know how much longer it's going to be, unfortunately. Well, Angelita, I think you're being very terrible when you say you're not sure what the rationale is. I'm, I no. will put words yeah. in everybody's ears, not in your mouth, that it, the mm-hmm. rationale is just to keep a very dizzying, disorienting uh, <laughs> mode of operation so that other things can continue with a little less vigilance on those other things as well as on these. It's just, it's very very consistent that mm-hmm. rationale applied there so well i let's go into another matter that's complicated the national naturalization in and impact of lack of good moral character which was also covered at the conference yes so good moral character is something that is basically an essential element of most um, immigration petitions. So whether you're seeking adjustment of status, whether you're, you know, you're seeking naturalization, you'll, you'll see 
you'll see these, right, um, this, this idea that you must um, have good moral character. Uh, for some immigration benefits and removal proceedings, you also must prove that you have good moral character. So it's really embedded uh, within a lot of uh, immigration benefits and that you would be able to seek, whether it's affirmatively or through removal proceedings. And this is especially true with naturalization. So um, it's, 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 it's one of the prongs, one of the things that you must prove. And it's the requirement of good moral character, for example, yes. one thing that would make you not have good moral character, if you can think of, would be things such as like gambling or being a habitual drunkard or participating in prostitution. That would be something that categorically might make somebody lack good moral character, and that might be difficult to overcome. However, there are, are other discretionary factors that may warrant a finding of lack of good moral character. And for, uh, for naturalization process, this can be failure to pay taxes, for example, failure to support your dependents, such as your minor children, and, or, and this is the kicker, um, this is a really interesting one, having yes. an affair which resulted in the destruction of a marriage. Uh, that can also result in a finding of uh, lack of good moral character for naturalization purposes. So you can really see the way that um, uh, immigrants' lives are really monitored and really um, uh, you know, inspected by the state, that even personally, right, they can ask you really personal questions even in family-based petitions and marriages, right, you go to your interview and they can really ask you very personal questions about your relationship to make sure that they, it's a bona fide marriage. And so these are a lot of um, intrusions into your personal life that, that can happen to you as an immigrant. And so lack of good moral character is, is definitely one of those, and it's very important to, to be able to show that, uh, that you're not someone who's, you know, a habitual drunkard or you don't have any of these crimes that would make you uh, lack that good moral character and that you're always paying your taxes and, 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 and supporting your dependents and things like that because um, having some of these issues in your, in your background uh, could definitely, could potentially be a, um, a red flag and, and it might make it difficult for, to obtain naturalization. It's one reason why I'm always asking listeners and anybody I meet, it seems, that they need to pick up the N-400 form, the application for naturalization, so they can see in all 22 pages the kind of scrutiny, the kind of uh, the documentation required of an applicant. And when I go through those N-400s, when I go to citizenship fairs, I feel like I, I should have been cleared for some kind of, I have my own ethical background, you know, cleared so that I would be privy to this highly personal information. So it's, but that the, um, that moral character comes in those last questions as well. <laughs> the, uh, the habitual drunkard, it's exactly worded that way, folks. So it's, it's, uh, ugh. So I guess I, while we're talking about the, the N-400 and all the processing, I learned from my work with the communities organized for responsible development. They're the ones that do the citizenship fairs here in Orange mm -hmm. County. I understand that it, it's taking the process of naturalization applications one and a half to two years. Is this your experience? And to what do you attribute this protracted process? And is it reasonable? Well, I think I, I'm attributing this these long delays, especially recently, to the increased workload of USCIS. Now, uh, because of, of some of these policies that the administration has decided to, to enact, we see longer processing times in terms of immigration. So, for example, the requirement of doing an, uh, an adjustment of status interview for employment-based cases, that was never required in the past. So now these in increased interviews have also 
um, have made it difficult to keep up with the regular workload that USCIS has. So we've noticed that since some of these things, um, this increased scrutiny with some cases, with uh, in increasing interviews for, for certain types of cases like employment-based adjustment of status, we've noticed that this has made other things such as naturalization um, applications just you know, be further and further backlogged. Uh, whereas before, I, you know, I would notice maybe like a year, a little bit less than a year, some of my cases that I did naturalizations for. So they were relatively, a year was relatively reasonable and normal, and now they're definitely lasting much longer than that. Um, I had a pro bono pending for their naturalization interview. They were in the queue since November, and they just, just received their naturalization appointment for next month. So being in the queue for several months just waiting because, you know, they were good to go for their interview, but they literally had to be on the queue since November. So it, it's definitely um, something that I, I feel until they can maybe hire more officers or, you know, learn the processes and get properly trained, we might not see a pickup in, in the adjudication of these naturalization cases, and, and they'll continue to kind of be a little bit of backlogged until that happens. Well, I guess we can see the rationale coming or the the policy the consistency of the if there's no if there's no clarity in the time frame for an asylum seeker to have their application reviewed then we're dealing also uh, with maybe not not a huge motivation to reduce the caseload so you know <laughs> in terms of appropriating you know, budgets to cover that so let's then um, go. I want to go back to another provision that you were talking about. Then um, oh, let's see the cancellation of removal for legal permanent residents and non-legal permanent residents. That was another thing that was discussed and that you see in your practice. Yes. Yeah, so cancellation of removal is a, a, a form of immigration relief that folks who are in either of these two situations can seek. And this is once, you know, let's say someone's a legal permanent resident and they've committed a certain crime that would make them removable, they could potentially try to uh, seek cancellation of removal and base essentially, you know, get their, 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 their uh, legal permanent resident status back. Um, depending on whether they meet certain criteria. For folks who are not legal permanent residents who are, who are just, you know, they were here maybe perhaps unlawfully and they were detained in some way, shape, or form, let's say through an immigration raid or they were, you know, picked up at the grocery store or whatever it is, and they were suddenly now put into removal proceedings, uh, if these people meet certain requirements, which is that they have been in the country for a certain period of time, that they uh, are a person, again, of good moral character and that they would, they have a qualifying relative. And in this situation, their children would qualify. So if they are children, for example, who are U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents or parents or spouses would suffer some extreme hardship, um, extreme and unusual hardship, so it's actually a higher standard in this situation, then these folks could potentially qualify to apply for cancellation of removal and, if granted by the immigration judge, they would also um, be, able, be able to obtain green card status at the end of this. You know, and again, it's, it's only through removal proceedings, only granted through, through the immigration judge, and, uh, and they have to prove this, this extreme hardship, which is a high burden, um, you know, certain continuous presence during the period of time required, and, um, and that, again, good moral character. So it's difficult, and it's also, there are also caps on the types of, uh, on the visas, the number of visas that, that are allocated every year for cancellation or removal. I don't have the number off the top of my head. But generally, 
but because of the fact that there are these caps, uh, people who are getting, you know, approved or, or the judge has a reasonable release that they would be approved, they're actually also getting put on this deferred action sort of list. They're kind of being put on the waiting list of some kind uh, until, until a visa is available, which again could mean, gosh, you know, who knows how long because so many people, um, there's too many applicants and there's not enough visas available. So it's, it's, it's not something that you want to do uh, at all because it's, there's no guarantees with anything and even if you are granted, there's a cap and so you might have to wait a long time for that. So, Angelita, can you tell us what, what are your clients, for example, what are they doing in this limbo? <sighs> I'm trying to just, uh, you know, live, live their lives as best as possible. Um, we obviously advise folks to, you know, do everything that they can to stay out of any sort of trouble because any kind of, you know, crime or any kind of, um, you know, uh, of those kinds of situations will definitely uh, be, be, a, be negative for, for, their, for their cases. And so, uh, you know, continue to support their children while their children are going to school. Um, if they're able to get, a, you know, a work permit, um, obviously, you know, filing your taxes regularly. A lot of judges um, really want to see that you have filed your taxes, and they're very adamant of, about, about that. Um, and they look, they frown upon folks who are not doing those things. And so it's also about knowing who your judges are when, when you're in this kind of situation as well and what they want. Um, but, yeah, just trying to, you know, live, have the patience and, um, and, and oftentimes it's very, they're just, you know, they're scared. They're, they're living a life of just being scared while they're waiting because um, they could get picked up at any time, right, uh, under this administration. If you are in removal proceedings, they can just decide to, um, to actually execute the removal order, right? And so that's, that's something that people are kind of having to live with apprehension and, um, and a little bit of fear that we, we don't know what, what's going to happen in their, in their future. And so it's... it's um, very stressful for some of these families that are going through these situations. So, Angelita, let's say, and this person in limbo, they run, they run a red light, which any one of us could do at any time. But that, for them, that could be toast. Well, it um, it depends if the officer decides to, you know, check their, you know, if it's the officers just doing their normal officerly duties of just giving you a ticket, uh, and they're not looking, they're not you know, thinking of anything else, they're not necessarily profiling you for, you know, immigration violations or anything like that, then, uh, or also depending, depending on the jurisdiction that you live in, right? So if, if there are certain jurisdictions that are just not very friendly and the officer is going to decide to look up your social security number or look up whether you even have a social security number, yeah. they, that, that could potentially happen, right? Because that is, um, they, potentially that could be a, 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 they could be in a jurisdiction where that's, that's just the case and that's the norm. And so uh, you really have to be aware of kind of whether your jurisdiction, whether your, your, the place that you live is an area that's, you know, more friendly um, or just is not going to be out there persecuting folks um, for their immigration status. Uh, you just have to be really kind of aware of those, of those kinds of laws. And usually people are because of, you know, news and the tele, you know, news, news reports and, and those sorts of things that are informing folks of, of, of what's happening in their in their areas locally, but it, it could definitely happen. Um, it has happened, um, you know, just as it has happened that U.S. citizens U.S. citizens have been deported, right? In the past, uh, it's very very um, it's it's not unheard of. So I'm in the position of having to skip over another array of detailed questions, and I want to get the takeaways for people that are wanting not to be on the sidelines with this. And I, the to the extent that you're involved with lining up 
pro bono representation of clients. Um, what do you suggest listeners can do that are with whatever skills? What can they do to help out in supporting anybody in this these limbos that you're describing for us in such vivid detail? Yeah, I mean, volunteer. There's so many awesome local organizations in, in, in the area, like Orange County, um, you know, COFEM. There's a lot of great organizations that, that are constantly seeking volunteers, people to help fill out paperwork, uh, just, you know, whether it's a naturalization clinic so people can get out and, and actually have the power of, of the vote, which is really important. Um, just being involved with your local organizations and supporting those because they're they're really the ones. Even churches as well. Churches oftentimes are are, are venues for uh, for being able to uh, inform others about what's happening. Uh, just any kind of organization that's that's a community-based organization that's really out there um, trying to inform and trying to educate and being involved with those. And that's usually the first place where you can really uh, access and sort of you know do a little bit more than. Um, than what you can personally. And then on your own, individually, you know, people think that calling their congressmen or calling their representatives is, is, is futile, but, um, but they really can be, they really can create changes. Um, Representative um, Rick Durbin from, I believe, is it Illinois or Utah? I don't remember where, where he's a representative from, but he's one of the sponsors and one of the sponsors for the DREAM Act and right. one of the people who has really pushed it. And, and he was very, you know, he was anti-immigrant before, but. Uh, one, one student who came to talk to him who was uh, a, a dreamer really changed his mind. And so sometimes we forget about the power of, of individual stories and the power of, of, indiv- of individual people who are really being impacted on the, on the day-to-day who, who sometimes these congressmen and these representatives don't hear from. They don't know. Uh, they don't see the reality of, of how people are individually being affected, even though you kind of see things in the news Sometimes that personal story can make a difference, and so you know, calling representatives, being involved with your local nonprofits, you know, being informed, um, and listening to all sorts of news—not just one source of news—can right. really um, help you stay informed with what's happening, and, and also give you resources and, and um, to how how to help others as well. Well, it looks like the California Sanctuary Law, the SB 54, there is a petition that seems to be qualifying for statewide initiative to reverse SB 54. This may be a platform for nuanced discussion about asylum seekers and other immigration naturalization applicants. So maybe that is we can see a silver lining in bringing reason to this uh, discussion and the scrutiny of our uh, newly arrived uh, neighbors, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very important to be informed about how, how laws are passed in each state. And because we have laws that can be passed through ballot initiative here in California, it's extremely important to be informed about what is actually happening. And, and sometimes, you know, descriptions of, 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 of certain proposals are very vague or very confusing. And so getting the full picture, getting all of the information is very powerful. So that way, when you are going out there and you are voting, uh, you actually know exactly what you're voting for and you're not confused or potentially, you know, be voting for something that might even be against your interests, right? And so right, um, right. I think it's purposeful oftentimes that these descriptions are written. Well, Angelita, I really appreciate all the time and the expertise. It's been so detailed, and I know that there's even more you have to say. I, thank you for giving us that today. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. My guest was Angelita Chavez-Halaka. 
immigration attorney in private practicing at in private practice here at uh, at Cerritos firm. She counsels clients on unlawful presence waivers and the Violence Against Women Act and naturalization, complex immigration matters, and eligibility for other forms of immigration relief. Feels like home to me. Feels like home to me. Feels like well, that was my wrap. Next week, I'll have on some real fireworks. UCI medical students are going to are soldiering on while our county board of supervisors turns its back on a best practice needle exchange program. Then. Nano, hyper nano batteries, just listen to the chemists blow our minds. Professors Junhee Lee and Ara Abkarian will be my guests. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I can almost see through the dark there's light.